Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. Go ahead and turn uh, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, as we begin a study uh, through the book of Daniel, that will take us probably several weeks, and uh, so every week we'll try to, try to probably do about a chapter uh, every week. Today we're going to start uh, that study. Uh, as Theo saying that text, uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, that comes out of uh, Revelation chapter 4, if you recognize that. And the book of Daniel one of the interesting things about it is he was a prophet, and it takes us, uh, in fact, by the end of the book, he's, he's talking about some of the similar things that are, that are in the book of Revelation. And we'll, we'll get there as we, as we plug through this book, but today we'll, we'll begin uh, in chapter 1 in the book of Daniel. If I could say there's a, a, any kind of theme uh, in this book, and as I did study, just about everybody I ran across agreed with this, that the theme that, that pops through the pages is this. God is absolutely sovereign over history and over any kingdoms in this world. Let me say that again. The theme of this book is that God is absolutely sovereign over history and over any of the kingdoms uh, of this world. Even though the book is titled Daniel and he is in fact the writer, as you go through it, he does do some great things, and you see some great stories with him and, and his friends. The fiery furnace story comes out of here, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den. A lot of these great stories that if you were like me and you grew up in a church, you probably even remember them as a child in a coloring book and those kind of things. They're those kind of stories, but I want to say on the front end, don't lose this. It's not so much that... Oh, isn't that great? Daniel handled the lions. Oh, isn't that great? They were in the fiery furnace. The bigger picture is the God who was with these men as they went through these fiery trials. It is, it is not so much that Daniel shut the lion's mouth. It is that God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. It was written by Daniel. He's a 6th century Jewish exile to a place called Babylon. If you go back and look at the history, he was actually there during several people's reigns. It was beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. That's who we begin with here. Uh, Daniel lived to be in his 80s, and he saw four different rulers of Babylon. What we find is that he, he was in exile. As, as you go through the Old Testament history, real quick, this is real quick, you had King David, right? You remember him. King Solomon. It didn't take too long after those two guys, and I just fast-forwarded really quickly, but the kingdom split. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. Towards the end of their time, all the prophets, like Isaiah and some of those earlier ones, were telling Israel, you need to straighten up. You need to repent, or God's going to do what? He's going he's to judge you. And sure enough, that's what happened. He brought nations like Assyria and others along, and it didn't take too long. There was a big string of bad kings. You'll go through the Old Testament, it'll say, and so-and-so was king, and he did evil. And the next one, he did evil. Well, they all kept doing evil, and, and they were exiled. The southern kingdom, they held out a little bit longer, but it wasn't too long before they were taken over as well. 
This is hundreds of miles away, uh, by the way, and some of you may have actually probably been very close to where the original Babylon was in, in our uh, time and deployments and things like that in the military, I imagine, in this room. But it's hundreds of miles away from where we're talking about in the southern kingdom of where Jerusalem uh, would be uh, today. And as they took over, what they did is what we just read about. Uh, some of these young men were, were exiles, and we're going to read a little bit about uh, what, what they did. You could organize the book of Daniel into really two sections. Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 6 are Daniel the man, and that is his life, what he did, his interactions with others. And then chapter 7 through 12, you could say that's Daniel the message. As I was getting ready to preach and, and do a, a series of preaching, I never preached through Daniel, and I was plugging along and I was going through chapters 1 through 6. Oh, it'll be fun to preach that. This will be great to preach. Then I got to chapter 7, 8, 9. I said, oh, what have I gotten myself into? I, and I don't want to just skip over it, but we'll, we'll get there together. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little challenging at times because it's a lot of this prophetic, prophetic stuff, but we'll, we'll make it through. Daniel the man, Daniel the message, you could say it this way. Daniel the prophet, and then Daniel and his actual uh, prophecies. We've already read chapters, uh, verses 1 through 8, excuse me. What I'd like to do is I'd like to go back, so keep your Bible open. I'd like to talk through these verses before we get into some, 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 of, the, some of the truth that I think God wants us to see today. So let's begin uh, in chapter 1. Some of this we've already seen. Jehoiakim was king of Judah. What happened? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he took over Jerusalem. He besieged it. So... They not only besieged it, they took some things out of the temple and they carried those things away. It says in verse uh, number two, he carried some of the things from God's temple, from the temple in Jerusalem, and put it in the treasure of, of his God in Babylon. What, what is he saying? He's essentially saying that our Babylonian gods are greater than, than your God, Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. He's making a statement that his, his, his God, his culture, everything about them, they're, they're better than Jerusalem. So then he orders Ashpenaz in verse 3. He says, go find these, these men. That's where Daniel comes in. And he gives some criteria for them. What does he say about them? He says, young men. I, I've read and read and read. Well, how old was Daniel? The best guess is I've heard anybody say is about 15 years old. This is a young man. It says, get young men without any physical defect. So no waivers for this, right? Like we have waivers. There's no waivers. You, there's no, you know, we're going to get the best. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. So they scored high on the ASVAB, right? Well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. They pick the best of the best. Why? Because it says that they're going to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. This is strategic on the Babylonians' part. If we can get the best of the best of these young men that we just take, took over and we can teach them our ways, guess what? We're going to train them to be good Babylonians, which will in turn help us in our kingdom and our nation and our own interests. So what does he say to do? He says he's going to do what? He's going to give them a daily amount of food. He's going to give them a daily amount of wine from the king's table for three years. It's a three-year training process. You know how like in the military you, you, you take school for a year and then you owe, owe three years? This is more like, you're gonna, we're going to teach you for three years, and then you're going to be ours for life. That's, that's the service obligation. The, these, these guys did not have a choice in this matter. They didn't sign up for this. You're going to be trained three years, and these young men were, 
and then they're going to serve in the kingdom of Babylon for life. Well, their plan was is to have these young men to, if we can indoctrinate them and we could do these things, we'll have, we'll have Babylonians. We don't want them to know anything about their God. We don't want them to know anything about that. We want them to learn our ways. And then you have that great uh, passage where he gives them the names. You, you saw the names, and we'll talk about those in just a minute, where he renames everyone. But then Daniel makes this uh, great statement. What does he say in verse 8? Remember, he resolved to do what? To not defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official not to defile himself this way. Now let's look at the rest of the story. I want you to keep, keep reading here. We've read, I think, through verse 8, but I want to I pick up where this left off. So look at verse 9. Daniel has made up his mind he's not going to do this. He's, he's, he's going to go, he's going to get training, check, check, I'll do all that, but I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to defile myself with the food and with the king's food. That's, that's a, a line in the sand that Daniel draws. Now here's what happens from there. Look at verse 9. God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, here it is, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you work looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. This guy has a legitimate concern. If I give Daniel what he wants, and he ends up looking worse than these other guys, I could, I could lose my head. I could be killed. Legitimate concern, right? Now here's what Daniel says in verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard uh, whom the chief appointed and appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, verse 12, Well, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So verse 14, so what does he do? He says he agreed and he tested them for ten days. If you know the story, do you remember what, what happened after the 10 days? Look at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, what? They looked healthier. They were better. Better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So they were healthier. They were better looking after the 10-day test. And then we learn in verse 17, what else did God do? He gives these four men, what, a knowledge, an understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. That's going to come up all through the book because several times we're going to see Daniel interpreting dreams. And then came time for these men to be set before the king himself. So look at verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal, none equal, to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. So they got a promotion, really. In verse 20, In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters and his whole kingdom. And then he ends the chapter by letting us know that Daniel served in this capacity until the first year of King Cyrus. In fact, if you read the last part of the book carefully or towards the end of his life, you find out that Daniel had sort of retired, but they brought him, he was like a retiree recall. They brought him back out of retirement to come back and to serve uh, in those same capacities because his knowledge was just so vast and he was just so good at what he did. He was one of those guys. That's how Daniel 
begins his book, we, we see where he came from and where he's going, and he is, this is his life. He never returns to Jerusalem. Uh, we find in other places in Scripture where people were exiled and they made their way back, like Nehemiah, for example. But Daniel, he never did that. This, this became where he was. He was, he, was a, he was a man who was in a world, but he was not of that world. He, he was a man who had made commitments early on in his life. I believe one of the things we learn from this passage is Daniel determined that he was going to have what we may call today a godly worldview. That is, Daniel had some commitments in his life where he was going to look at the world through the lens of his God. Now, when I say worldview, what is that? I have a couple of definitions from here. I think it, I think it helps us when we think for today a worldview. Uh, one, one man said it this way, a worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, we understand, and we judge with which determines our approach to life and meaning. Another man said it this way, The worldview is the ultimate questions of life, such as, Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is this all about? Is there a God? How can I live and die happily? What are good and evil? Another person said a worldview is sort of this set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic makeup of the world. It's, it's sort of a lens by which we look at the world. When you read this carefully of what Babylon was trying to do with Daniel and with his friends and with all, we, we only have an example of four of the young men, but we have, we have reason to believe, as you read it, that there was, there was many more that were taken, obviously in captivity, but also sele hand-selected for this process. Babylon was very much trying to change the worldview of Daniel and his friends. He wanted them to not look at the world with the lens of the God of the Bible. Okay? I believe there's some correlation with us because I believe that we live in a world, when you read through the rest of the New Testament, when you read the book of Revelation, who is the great evil that's talked about at the end of the book of Revelation? It calls it Babylon. It is symbolic for the evils of this world. Uh, the great Babylon in Revelation 17, I encourage you to go and read it. You can actually pull up your phone and do one of those little cool Bible searches on how many times the word Babylon shows up in the Bible. And it, it pops back up in, in Revelation big time. And it's a symbol for the world, for the, for the evils of the world around us. I believe that you and I live in a place that wants us to change our Christian worldview. It wants us to have a whole different outlook that's not the outlook of the Bible. Now, with that said, I want to look at four ways you and I can be challenged to change our worldview. And I think you see them here in Daniel. Here are four ways you and I are going to be challenged to change our worldview. Number one is this. Number one is isolation. Our worldview can be challenged when we are isolated from things of the Lord. When we're isolated from God's word, when we're isolated from God's people. Go back at verse 4 in Daniel chapter 1. What does it say? We're going to take these youths at the end of the verse and it says we're going to put them in the king's palace and we're going to move them. So we're going to remove them totally from their, from their home of, of Israel and we're going to put them in the king's palace. Their goal was if we can take these, these young men out of their cultures, they're going to, you got to think, they got plucked up. Think about this, parents. This te these teenagers got plucked away from their parents forever. Everything that 
you better hope and pray everything you taught up to that point sticks because they're about to, they're about to really get tested. Imagine what that would be like. And they get isolated. Believers, Christians, we need other Christians. We will not do well isolated. When young people go off to college, they do not do well as Christians if they are isolated. When people go off into the military who are Christians, if they do not connect with other Christians, they will find themselves very much isolated. When people are working a job and everybody around you is not a Christian and has a worldview that's not like the worldview of the Bible and doesn't think like you about God, you're going to need other Christians. Isolation is a way that your worldview will be challenged. Number two. Number two is indoctrination. Indoctrination. What, are the, what does the text say that they're going to do with Daniel and his, for, and his friends? We're going to teach him the language and the literature of Babylon. We're, we don't want him speaking Hebrew anymore. We don't want him speaking this new, speak our language. We're going to learn the literature. They're going to have three years at uh, what one commentator called the University of Babylon. We're going to indoctrinate them in our ways. Remember, how did they start this whole thing off? When they went and captured all these people, what did they do with all the articles in the, in the temple? We moved them and we put them in our temple. That wasn't just a, aha, I got your stuff. It was, we are, we are letting you know our gods are the true gods. Our worldview, our way of thinking is totally unlike the God that you've been worshiping your whole life, that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, we want no part of that. And as we get these young men... Babylon was going to do everything they could to indoctrinate them. Does that sound familiar? Or is this just, does this sound like it's right out of the page of what goes on in our, in our world all the time? Whether it be universities, whether it be uh, young people going off into jobs, or whether it be you and I living our life in, in, a, in a world that's very much unchristian. It is easy to get indoctrinated because you've got to think, we only know about four who stood for the Lord. Where's all the rest of the young men? I don't know what they all did, but I can only imagine if it's like today that many of them, and not, not being mean or critical of them, but I can imagine they left home, they went to a new place, and they said, well, everybody else is doing it, and I'm going to go this route too. They're being indoctrinated. So your worldview can get compromised by isolation, by indoctrination, but number three is this, it's compromise. Now what is the deal with Daniel and the king's meat? Daniel, he says very specifically in verse 8, that he resolves that he won't defile, defile himself with the king's food. He, 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 he said, okay, I'm going to be here three years. I'll study. I'll do all these things. I'll learn. In fact, it says that Daniel learned and became very wise, and, and they, they recognized it. But why the king's meat? Why was this such a big deal uh, to Daniel? Some of it, there's actually a very popular, I didn't know this, but there was a popular a few years ago called the Daniel Diet. And it's a big weight loss program thing, and somebody's made a lot of money off of it. And I don't know about all that. I do know he ate vegetables, that's what it says, and, and, he, and he was healthier. I don't know. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do your whole diet based on that necessarily. Go check it out. Maybe it's great, um, but the Bible just doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. Um, I think part of it may have been Daniel wanting to be healthy. But I think it was deeper than that. Daniel grew up in Israel where they very much were following the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And Daniel made a decision that he was going to try to follow those. I think that was part of it. This is just a little chaplain Braswellology here. I don't know. But I'm just wondering as I think about why would Daniel do this. 
I wonder if Daniel, in resolving to do this, I wonder if he was just thinking in his own heart, I want to do everything I can to stay close to the Lord. And if I go this route and maybe it sounded easy because this is all the good food, it's all the good wine. And in his heart, he's thinking, if I do that, it's just going to make me become more and more like an ungodly society. And I got, I've got to do something for myself to, to say, here I stand, I can do no further. Maybe. Maybe that was part of what he was thinking. The goal, I think, was to entice them with the delicacies and privileges of new life. We want you to be Babylonian. Oh, by the way, we're going to give you all these things. Again, does that sound familiar? We want you to throw away all your stuff about the Lord. Oh, by the way, we'll give you this and we'll give you this. Very similar to what goes on today. But Daniel, he wasn't going to compromise in this area of his life. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to stay exactly where I am. And then number four, another way we get challenged in our worldview is our identity. This one's interesting. Our very identity. What did they do with these young men? They changed their names. We're going to look at those names in just a minute. So my first name is Daniel. Uh, the, the, about as exciting as the story gets is when I was, before I, I'm, the, I'm the oldest, before I was born, the story goes that uh, my dad, and I think my mother too, as they had their first child, they, they kind of said, well, we really hope we, our first child's a boy. We want a boy. And there was a, there was a, a Toyota commercial and the commercial had the little catchphrase, you asked for it, you got it, Toyota. So my dad had this running joke. I don't remember that commercial, obviously, because I wasn't born yet. But as, before, before my birth, my dad told my mom and all the family, and they were real nervous because he was, said he was going to name his firstborn Toyota. Because you asked for it, you got it, Toyota. And then the whole time, I'm just kidding, I would never do that. And then they came up with the name Daniel. Well, our names, we, we name people for a lot of different reasons. But when you look at it in this time, naming someone, especially in Judaism, was very important. In fact, uh, even today, modern day Judaism, had, you, some of you may be familiar with someone you know who's Jewish and who has what? A naming ceremony. It's a whole ceremony they do with it. Every one of their names meant something about God. Daniel, Daniel, El is God, Dani is judge, means God is my judge. Every one of their names has something to do with God as peace, something to do with the God of the Bible being their God. Interestingly enough, if you go back and look at what the new names were, Daniel's name was changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar. They all have to do with some Babylonian God, every one of them. It wasn't just willy-nilly name change. There was something very intentional here. As those four young men from Israel had names identifying themselves with the Lord, Babylon said, no, 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 we're going to change their names and we're going to make their names identify with what we want them to identify with. That's a way to have a worldview change. That's not going to be your name anymore. You're now going to be named this. They were doing everything they could to, to change their hearts and minds and have a culture that was totally a different world view. Daniel had to stand alone many times. It compares uh, Daniel and his friends to the others at the, end of the, at the end of this chapter, and you find out what, that they were actually doing better. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 2 said it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, those are the ways they were compromised. But how was Daniel and his friends, how were they better? Well, they were blessed in three ways, I think. Number one, they were blessed in body. Remember what it said after 10 days? They were better. They, they were healthier looking than all the other men. They were better in body. Number two, they were better in spirit. It says in Daniel 1.17 that God gave these men knowledge and understanding and literature and wisdom, and he understood visions and dreams. So they were better in body and spirit. They were better in mind. It says in verse 20 that when the king spoke with them, he found them to be ten times better than his own priests and than his own uh, sorcerers. Daniel was blessed as he obeyed God throughout his life. Now, as we think about it, and as in the next few weeks we look at Daniel just a little bit more, I want to close out with four ways that I think we can learn from Daniel early in his life here. And those are these. Number one, decide early or decide now to be committed to the Lord. Don't wait until later. When it says in verse 8 that he purposed in his heart, that's something he did long before the issue ever came up. When I was a teenager, I remember my youth pastor saying, uh, don't decide whether or not you're going to have sex before marriage. Don't wait until you're in the back seat of a car with a girl to make that decision. That's what he used to tell me. Decide early to make those commitments. The key word, I think, here, or key words, are Daniel was a person of integrity and Daniel was a person of discipline. He made a decision on the front end that this is what he's going to do. Can I, can I encourage you that in your life and in my life, the best way we can follow the Lord is to make decisions and, and lines in the sand now of here's how we're going to purpose in our hearts to live and conduct ourselves. Number two is this. Find favor with others through our faithfulness. I'm going to say that again. Find favor with others through our faithfulness. If you'll notice in this passage, remember what did Daniel do? He didn't go and demand. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he, he knew he wasn't in any position to do this anyway, but he didn't go up and demand his rights and all this kind of stuff like we, we may see somebody do today because he was probably well aware that, you know, he was at their mercy anyway. But what did he do? He very kindly, he, he very humbly, he asked that if he could have, do the food the way he, he would like to. He found favor with others because he was faithful. He found favor with others because they saw in him a willingness to work. They saw his wisdom and they knew that he was willing to do that and they knew that he was willing to do well. Christians, we should be some of the best workers any employee will ever have. It's very sad when, uh, when you, uh, over the years, you may run across a, a small business who says, oh, we're Christian. But then if they have the reputation that you can't trust them or they don't stand behind their work. No, no, no. Christians should be the best workers that we ever have. Very simply things like uh, developing a reputation for being responsible. That's what Daniel did. Be humble, not belligerent. Don't be deceptive. And trust God even when things don't go our way. Daniel stayed faithful. Daniel was a good servant. Daniel was a good worker. Daniel treated people right. Be faithful in those matters God gives us, even when we're having to do so 
in a society that's not necessarily Christians. They should see in us a willingness to do right, a willingness to serve. And then number three, I'll share this with you. Serving in a foreign land, you are simply following in the steps of Jesus. I think the key words there would be courage and obedience. When you think about Daniel and you think about his friends in the next few weeks, we'll hear more about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the fiery furnace and all that stuff. I can't help but think that the son of God, what did he do? He left his home in heaven and he embraced a sinful world. And he never defiled himself either. He was tempted in every way. Jesus was just like you and me, except without sin. And also like those Hebrew boys, the Bible says in Luke 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and he found favor with God and man. Even when Jesus was a child, his teachers were, quote, amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. So know that as you and I live in this world where many times people around us do not have a Christian way of thinking, we are simply following in the footsteps of our Lord who left heaven and came to us and did just the same thing. There's going to be times when you and I live in our own spiritual Babylon. There's going to be times we're going to have to be a part of things in this world. We can't hide away forever. And there's going to be times that you and I, like Daniel, are going to have to take a stand. My prayer for us as we look at this passage today is, I pray that God would give us the courage, like he gave Daniel, to stand when those opportunities arrive. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as a benediction, and I pray that you would search our hearts. I pray that we would see if there's any way we need to turn to you. God, I pray that we could take the lessons from this passage and be sure of our calling, to be sure that our worldview, our way of thinking is in line with what you teach us in Scripture. God, we recognize that all of us this week will interact in a world where people don't have a Christian way of thinking. They don't follow Christ as their Savior. God, I pray that we would be good witnesses. I pray we would take a stand when those times come. I also pray that we'd be found faithful just as Christ was faithful, just as Daniel was faithful. And God, I also pray in, in our congregation today for those who maybe have those on their hearts they're praying for, for those who are who maybe young people who are, who are struggling in, in some of those areas where it's, where it's very difficult to be a Christian. God, I pray that you would hear our prayers and that those people you lay on our hearts to pray for, we would continue to pray that those we love would be able to serve you and take a stand for you, even in those difficult places. God, I pray that you would go with us. This